Okay, we are almost through Paul's anthropological terms, his terms about humans and, and people. And today we deal with the word soul. And then next week, God willing, we'll bring this to a stunning conclusion. Um, but today we start with soul. offered to get up here and do that dance. <clears throat> Dale's got the get up on. Stand up, Dale. Let everybody see you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have trouble turning that off because it's just so funny. <laughs> I want to keep watching it. Uh, thanks to Saturday Night Live for that uh, skit. I could not help but think as I was preparing this lesson whether or not the Apostle Paul would have recognized them singing, I'm a soul man, as them using the same word soul that Paul used 13 or so times in the New Testament. Um, I don't think he would have. <laughs> I'm not sure he would have with soul music. I'm not sure he would have with a lot of the ways we use the word soul. The soul is used in so many different ways and carries such a vast uh, uh, array of meanings that I think we need to biblically refocus in on what the biblical word is so that we don't read our Bibles and carry into the Bibles our concepts of what it means as opposed to trying to understand what it meant biblically and, and understand the Bible on its own terms. And we have a tendency to do the former, and, and it's just part of who we are. You know, we think we've got this language, and we ought to be able to rely on it as we read the translations. But we just have to be careful when we do it. So uh, I've got three burning questions uh, uh, for us to cover today. The first burning question is, what is soul? What is that word? What does it mean biblically when it's used? And, 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 and where does it come from? <clears throat> the second question is how specifically, since this is a class on Paul's theology, how did Paul use the word soul? And as we study how Paul used it, it should give us not only greater insight into Scripture, but greater insight and understanding into some of these passages uh, that Paul has. And then our third question is, so what? You know, what, what difference does it make? We call those points for home. 
And so with that, let's go through the class today. Um, <clears throat> what is soul? Well, when we look at it from the Greek New Testament, we're reading the Greek language. And so if we wanted to see what the Greek word is for soul, we could pull out a Greek-English lexicon, which is a, a dictionary uh, that, that takes Greek and puts it into English. Um, uh, and, and we could look up the word soul. We'd have to look it up under its Greek word, which is psuche. Psuche. Can you say psuche? Yeah, it's an unusual four-letter word, isn't it? And you're saying four-letter word, linear. You can't count. Well, I'm counting in Greek because you see in Greek that first PS is one letter. It's in fact the first letter of the word psalms, which is why we have psalms. But in English, we keep the s silent or the p silent, I guess, on psalms. So we just have psalms. But it's the Greek letter psi, P-S-I. Um, so that's one. And then the U is U. So that's easy, right? Except it gets kind of goofy because it's, it's, some people transliterate it, transliterate. If you translate, you take something from one language to another. If you transliterate, you change the letters from that language into English letters. Does that make sense? You all know that difference? If not, you do now. And then the, the CH in psuche is the key. C-H-I, it looks like an X, and the bottom part of the X goes under the line, and that's one Greek letter. And then it ends with the eta, which in Greek looks kind of like an N, but it's the long E. So psuche is what the Greek word is for soul. And like I told you, that U, some people put it in as a Y. That's why the word for soul, exactly, psyche, or if you want to study it, it's psychology, psychology. Or if you've got a sickness for your body that's really in your psyche, you have a psychosomatic illness. Or if you really wanted to get gruesome, instead of showing the soul brothers, we could have shown psycho and Alfred Hitchcock. Because all of these are the same words and they all have come from this Greek concept. Now, if, if we're looking at the Hebrew, <clears throat> we'll throw this in real quick. The Hebrew word for soul is a word that's spelled N-E and you can do it as a P-H or you can do it as an F. It gets transliterated either way. But nephesh is the Hebrew word for soul. And it is written right to left. And so that's the Hebrew word for soul, which is what you would find in your Old Testament, of course. Now, we remember that the Old Testament was translated before the time of Paul into Greek, right? And the Greek Old Testament translation is called the what? Septuagint. Have we ever talked about how you abbreviate that? L-X-X, which are the Roman numerals for 70. Because supposedly 70 scholars, and that's what Septuagint means is 70. 
supposedly 70 scholars worked on that translation. Probably a lot more, but that's the story. Well, we can read about the soul in the Hebrew as the nephesh, but we can also go to the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek translation that Paul used often. <clears throat> and in that Greek translation, we will find psuche translating nephesh. Occasionally it translates a few other words like ruach for spirit or lave for heart. But, but it's mainly used to translate the word nephesh. And would you care to guess if this is a rare or a common word in the Old Testament? It's very common. If we put it on a thermometer, soul is used not 100, not 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, but over 750 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. It's really good if you're a, a, a scholar who's, not, um, who's just starting out to study those things because you learn that word, you get to use it a whole lot. You know, It's not like one of those words that only occur one time that you've got to remember really hard. So you see it in the Old Testament. You see it over and over and over. And in the Old Testament, as we've sort of been indicating in this class, the concept of, of soul used to translate nephesh, occasionally spirit, heart. But it's, it's a, a common... The, the Old Testament views man as one. And we'll get into this in great detail next week. But, but the Old Testament is really emphatic that we're one being. It doesn't have this Greek dualism of, of the, the soul that, that's imprisoned within the body. And so... Let me give you two examples of how this word's used in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Genesis 2, verse 7, and then we're going to look at Deuteronomy 20, uh, uh, 12, verse 20. In Genesis 2, verse 7, God's made man and woman in this chapter, and we see in verse 7 of chapter 2, get that a little bit bigger then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature okay this is find that word where is nephesh in the Hebrew Psuche in the Septuagint in this passage. Breath? Breathe? No, living creature. Living creature. The King James will say soul. The old King James, at least, I haven't looked at the new King James. But this is it. You know, and, and the idea here is that the soul was not a composite part of a person in the Hebrew idea. Soul is, is what you were. It's, it's just that that was you. You're a living being. You're a soul. We think, we think of soul as this inner part of, of us in Western society and in a lot of evangelical circles. 
But the Old Testament concept is your soul is just who you were. Now, it's, it's part of your desires. It can be the, the source of your desires and things of, uh, like that. But, but it is who you are. Here's another one. Look at Deuteronomy 12.20. This is a, an interesting one. This is Moses talking to the people before they enter the promised land. Um, and he's laying things out that God's been laying on his heart. They're in the wilderness. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. Well, you can eat meat whenever you desire. Word soul. Word soul is translated here as the you that craves meat and the you who desires. See, this is like the first soul food. <laughs> okay, I, look, I'm sick. That's going to be the best you get today. <laughs> I'm not just physically sick. Tech lost. Actually, we didn't lose last night. We lost this morning. We were ahead at midnight. <clears throat> I will eat... <laughs> The nice thing about being a tech fan is you can always wear school colors of black the next day. It's either a sign of support or a sign of mourning, but it works either way. <laughs> I will eat meat because you crave meat. Your soul craves meat. You may eat meat whenever your soul desires, if you will. The, the, the idea is the soul is just who you are. It's your source of desires. It's your source of cravings. It's, it's a composite part of who you are. And so we see it there. Um, uh, and, and I could put up the Septuagint. You could see it. Uh, in fact, this may be uh, fun. You can test your new Greek reading skills. Uh, Genesis 2-7. Ooh. Automatic focus. This button's there for a reason, isn't it? See, this is the Septuagint. This is the Greek version. And so you might just sit here and say, okay, hey, I can read verse 7. Or find verse 7. Um, <laughs> okay, God forms man. Uh, da, 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 da. There it is. See the PS? See the U? See the he? See the uh, Ada? And then that little N, which looks like a V at the end, is just one of the little signs that the, the noun wears to let you know where it fits in a sentence. So, um, I, I mean, it's there. Deuteronomy, same thing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 12, 20. Deuteronomy 12, 20. It's going to have it there twice. It's going to talk about, uh, let's see, you see it right there? And there it is, wearing a, a sign around it at the end of that final S. But you see, this, is, this word's just used over and over and over again in all sorts of contexts. And one of the reasons I make this point is because it's very fashionable, and we'll get into this next week. Um, I've got some very dear friends. I've got some mentors, spiritual mentors, uh, uh, who have a, a, um, a teaching that they do off of the idea 
of the soul being something very specific within man as opposed to being man. And one of the reasons I think that they mistakenly go that direction is because it's so hard to find the word soul by the translators many of the times it's used. But if you go back and actually read the scriptures in the original, you'll see that the language doesn't really fit the teaching all the time. And so this is a problem and an issue that we'll talk about in greater depth next week. But for now, we need to remember that the Old Testament speaks of the human as a singular form. You are a human. It doesn't divide man up in the Old Testament. Um, we're souls because we're living beings. We have desires. Uh, we have will because we're alive. If, if I wasn't alive, I wouldn't desire. I wouldn't have will. You know, we're souls. We're living beings. God made us living beings. Now, if we set aside the Old Testament and we look at the word soul, by the time we get to the writings between the Testaments, those are called intertestamental writings. The Old Testament kind of ends at about 400 B.C. and the New Testament doesn't start for another 440 years, 440, 50 years or so. And so during that intertestamental period, it's not like the Jews forgot how to write. They were still writing things and we've got copies of those things. And we can gradually see as the Greek influence grew, you'll remember with your history, who was the main person responsible for taking Greek civilization and sweeping across the Mediterranean with it? Alexander the Great. And so as Alexander the Great sweeps across the Mediterranean taking Greek culture with him, and he was a Macedonian, which was northern Greece. As he did that, Greece... In Greek culture began to influence in a number of different ways. You also had a lot of Jews living outside of Jerusalem at the time. And so they're getting Greek culture throughout the Mediterranean area. And you begin to see a Greek idea of the soul being more than just a description of a human. In some of these intertestamental writings, I brought one that I find very interesting, uh, called the Testament of Abraham. And scholars don't know exactly when the Testament of Abraham was written. They think it may have been as early as uh, 200 years before Christ. Some scholars date it as late as 500 years after Christ. More than likely, it was around the time of Paul, maybe shortly thereafter. The Testament of Abraham has God uh, telling the archangel Michael to go get Abraham, tell Abraham it's time to die. And since Abraham was a pretty rich fella, he needs to go ahead and write a will. Wouldn't it be cool if God took care of us by sin? I don't know if I really want notice, though. But if I wasn't prepared, it would be really nice to have a few days' notice. So the archangel Michael goes to Abraham, and he says, Look, it's time to die, and God wants you to start getting your house in order and figuring out who gets what. And then you're supposed to come with me back to the Lord. Abraham says, I don't want to die. And Michael says, well, <laughs> it's not really a choice. Abraham says, look, I haven't really seen the world. I'd like to see the world before I die. Michael says, hang on. 
I'll be right back. Goes up to God, says, Abraham's really hesitant about this whole dying thing, wants to see the world. Is it all right if I take him to see the world? God says, okay, but do it quickly. So Abraham, uh, Michael goes back to Abraham. See, I tell you this to say also, one of the reasons that one of my professors told me he believed in the integrity of Scripture, and as I've learned more over the years, I've grown to appreciate what he said, is he says, you look at the other writings of that day, and they were so outlandish that uh, 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 it's a real testimony to, to Scripture. But anyway, so the archangel Michael, he goes back down there. And he says, okay, Abraham. Well, Abraham says, all right, well, let's go see. So Abraham starts seeing the world and the peoples. And he realizes how wicked so many of them are. And he says, look, this is ridiculous. These people all need to go to hell. And uh, uh, this is just absolutely pathetic. And I'm calling down. And, and, and God doesn't want to send everybody to hell. He wants to have mercy. So Michael says, hang on. Goes back, talks to the Lord. Comes back and says, look, you know, this isn't going to work out the way you want it to, Abraham. And, and proceeds to explain that there are two gates. There's a very narrow gate. And few there are that find it. That leads to eternal life. But the gate is wide and the way is broad. That leads to death. Uh, the two gate idea was clearly there at the time Jesus taught. It's a good example of how Jesus used illustrations. Because you may be thinking, wait, that sounds like Matthew 7. Jesus used illustrations of his day that people would understand. Um, uh, I don't know that he would have shown the soul uh, man video. But, but he, he probably had better taste than we do. But, but he used things that would communicate in culture and time just as Paul did. The exact wording that seems to so closely mirror Matthew 7 indicates that some Christians probably did some adding to the testament of Abraham since uh, uh, it was originally written by the time we get our copies. But um, uh, anyway, uh, long story uh, less long. I guess it's too late to make a long story short. Um, uh, Abraham finally repents and says, gee, I need to have more mercy in my heart like God does, and I hope God will move people to repentance. But uh, in the process of Abraham finally dying, his soul leaves his body. And, and, and it's his soul that makes it up to God. That's very different than a Hebrew concept. The Greeks had, if we go to Greek thought... Um, we just did that. In Greek thought, you can go back to Homer, who's like the earliest real Greek writer. Scholars don't even know if Homer existed, but a lot do. And we certainly don't know if he looked like that or that. But <laughs> Homer wrote uh, and, and used, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, his last name was Simpson. Um, Homer used uh, uh, the word soul. And used it as the life force within a person. And what happened when you died is your soul escaped through your mouth. The idea of your dying breath. Your soul escaped through your mouth and it just went and lived as a shade or a shadow in the underworld. And Greek thought continued to develop it. By the time you get to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you've got the soul is the moral seat. It's the place of value of a person. It's what really counts. It's, it's, it's the, the true essence. That's what we've inherited in our Western thought forms and systems. 
to a large degree. So we have to be careful. And, and that's what's present in the testament of Abraham with the idea that upon death his soul leaves his body and becomes this disembodied uh, traveler to God. Um, now, that's the way the word was used in the Old Testament. The Jewish writings in the middle used it the same way as the Old Testament, but started sprinkling in Greek ideas. And then that's the way the word was used in, in uh, typical Greek. With that, we've settled the burning question, I hope, or at least given us some indications of what is the soul. So now we can move to the second burning question. How does Paul use the word? Does Paul use it the way the Old Testament did? Does Paul use it the way the, the intertestamental writings do with the Greek influence? Does Paul use it the way the Greeks did? Or does Paul come up with some brand new hybrid that he does himself? I think most scholars come down on the same point. Paul used it like the Old Testament. You don't really see with maybe one or two passages causing some scholars some trouble. You don't really see Paul using it any other way. But there's something very bizarre about how Paul uses the word soul compared to the Old Testament. Very bizarre. While the Old Testament uses it on every other page, Paul, in all of his writings put together, uses it just 13 times. Very, very, very rarely. Paul, a student of the Old Testament, who studied it, who memorized so much of it, who's able to quote it, who quotes it over and over and over, rarely uses the word that's found so prominently in the Old Testament soul. In fact, out of the 13 times that Paul uses it, several of those are only when he's quoting the Old Testament and it's in the Old Testament. So what I'd like us to do is consider Paul's usage. And as we consider it, we'll try and understand what Paul means with the word soul. But ultimately, before we're done, we're going to ask the, 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 the real question for me, which is, why did he use it so rarely? So let's start by looking through the passages. I've pulled out the 13 passages where he used it. Now, there are some other examples of him using it, sort of, there's one passage where he puts the letter A in front of it, which in Greek, if you, if um, Greek has this great cool thing, um, like the word cool. If there was a Greek word for cool, in Greek what you could do if you wanted to say uh, not cool, in Greek you just put the letter A in front of it, the, the alpha, and that means not. Kind of like in English we put the word un in front of something to make it not. Okay, it's a little prefix that just means not. So there's a place where Paul talks about something that's not pasuke. Okay? It's, it's not spirit, I mean soul. So we have that example also. 
But outside of that, we've got a few times where Paul talks about something that's soulish. And then we have the 13 times that he actually uses the word soul. So let's look at those. I've pulled them out. And as we do it, we'll kind of have some fun playing uh, where's Waldo with the word soul. First, we'll go to Romans 2, 9. I have to cover up my notes so y'all don't see them. Okay, Romans 2, 9. The word soul's in here. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Huh? Human being. Very good. That human being. And what does Paul mean? Does he mean that there'll be trouble and distress for every some inner part of you? No. He means there'll be trouble and distress for all of you. Your entire being. Okay? It's bad. How about 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45? Ah, come to me. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Living being. And this is one of those examples where Paul is using the word because he's quoting the Old Testament, the Septuagint. That's the Genesis 2-7 passage. He's got the phrase in there where God breathed into, God formed man from the dirt, breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being, a living creature. Now, the, the writers, uh, the translators here are nice enough to give you that little footnote three, and you can go down to the bottom and look at footnote three, and they'll tell you it's, it's a living soul as opposed to a being, but it's the... Uh, Okay, Romans 11. It's the next one we'll look at. Romans 11. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? And then this quoting Elijah. Lord. See, he talked like that. Lord. They've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What do you think it is? It's life. You're right. They seek my life. He wasn't saying, they're looking inside me to see if there's a soul, because they want it. No, we have no use for your body. We just want your soul. No. They wanted him. They wanted his life. They wanted who he was. Um, and that, by the way, is another example of Paul using the word, but only because he's quoting an Old Testament passage of Scripture. It's not a word Paul typically used that much himself. Look at, this is uh, Romans 16. Okay? Romans 16, verse 3. Paul says to greet, this is in the area where he does his personal greetings, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Where do we have it? Yep, life again. Um, they risk their necks for his soul. 
Well, no, what they were doing was they were trying to, they weren't, they never were risking their necks because of a concern of Paul and his soul. Oh, Paul's going to go to hell if we don't do this. No, they're risking their lives, their necks, for his life, for who he was. Look at uh, Philippians 2, 29 through 30. He's talking here about Epaphroditus and all the good things that God had done through Epaphroditus, even though he was, uh, Epaphroditus had been sick and all. And, and Paul tells the Philippians to receive him in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men because Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. He was risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What is it? Yeah. See, he, Paul's using this very much like the Old Testament. It's just, it's who you are. It's your, you're a living being. He wasn't risking his soul in some Greek inner being sense. He's risking his, his very life. All right, look at Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Where is it? Yeah. Let every person be subject. Again, this is not some random soul idea. What Paul is saying is you're supposed to be subject to the authorities. It's just you, me, all of us. It's a person thing. All right, now let's look at 2 Corinthians 1.23. And by the way, when we're done with this, you will have looked at every time Paul uses it. This is thorough today. 1.23, Paul says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Paul says, if I'd have come, I was really going to be ticked off at some people. And, and don't you think I was just loafing, not coming. You ought to be very happy I didn't show up based on how angry I was. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you. All right, where is it? Me. Okay. Second Corinthians twelve fifteen or uh, twelve fifteen. Here we go. This is going to be really hard to get. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. <laughs> if I love you more, am I to be loved less? When Paul says he would be gladly spent for our souls. We shouldn't all of a sudden go into that word soul and think that he's talking about just who they are inside. He means who they are. You know, I, he means, um, we'll see it again in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now, this is one of these where people build their theology from, and we're going to talk about it in great detail next week. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I've just got this great desire to talk about it in great depth, but I'm not going to. So just file it away for next week. Ephesians 6, 5 through 6. Paul says, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. 
not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Care to guess? Heart. Here the word soul is translated heart. Now what does he mean heart? Well, it's still the Old Testament idea that that's, you know, your, that's who you are. That's what you want. That's how you feel. It's the source of, of, of your desires, your cravings that we saw in Deuteronomy 12, 20. It's, it's, but it's not that there's this part within you that, that's that way as opposed to the rest of you. It's just part of being alive. When you're a human, you know, you talk about doing something with all your heart, with all your gusto, giving it your best. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about you do your best with all that you are. Doing it from the heart does not mean, wait a minute, wait a minute. My master told me to rake out the barn. Now, I've got to do it from the heart to the Lord, but not the body. So I'm going to sit here, and in my heart I'm feeling so tired from all this raking in my heart. But my body does not have to do it. Because Paul didn't say, don't do it with my body. He said, don't do it, with, or to do it with my soul. See, we, we, we've got to understand these things. Look at uh, Colossians 3. I didn't tr copy this one too good. My ribbon got in the way. But Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Where is it? Heartily. Work from the soul. Work giving it your gusto. Giving it all that you are. When you're doing something, you don't do anything as if you're... Look, Paul would say to us, I don't know what you do for a living. I practice law. One day I'll get it down good enough. I don't have to practice anymore and I can really do it. <laughs> I practice law. I'm a husband. I have five daughters. No, four daughters and a son. Five children. <laughs> I don't know what that Advil is, but bring it here and I'll drink it. Um, the... Uh, 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 I've got some friends. All of these things I've got and all of these things I do, I can't divide them up into three categories. I cannot scripturally say that there is a category of godly things, spiritual things, and a category of sin and then, let's get those categories on the same page. Some third category of just every day. You know, it's not spiritual. It's not sinful. It's going to work. Oh, yeah, when I go to work, I guess I need to, to have a Christian attitude and a Christian ethic. No. That's not Paul. That's not Paul at all. The everyday can be sinful or the everyday can be spiritual. But when Paul says to do it with your heart, to do it heartily, he's saying do it with your soul. He's saying do it with all that you are unto the Lord. The reason I'm a lawyer is because God's got some things he wants me to do as a lawyer. As shocking as that may be to some people. 
if you are a garbage collector and God has put you there, then you collect that garbage as if you're collecting it for the Lord. You use your body, you use your soul, and you are no less valuable in the world or in the eyes of God Almighty than the lawyer, the doctor, the college professor, the engineer, the accountant. Because there's no difference. You're doing what God put you there to do. And if you're doing what God puts you there to do, then praise the Lord. And if you're not, then you're working for men or you're working for yourself. And what you do will not bear any eternal fruit. Paul will say in Corinthians, you're building out of wood, hay, and stubble that all burn away. And who on earth, didn't we learn our lesson from the three little pigs? (laughs) That is not what you want to build out of. So when Paul uses this passage and Paul says, work with your soul, he means um, work heartily as for the Lord. He means totally. Everything you're doing, you do it for the Lord. And that's why you give it your best. And that's why you do it ethically. And that's why you do it honestly. And it's not to get his God's good pleasure. And it's not to earn your way to heaven. It's because God has called you into his kingdom. His spirit is within you. You are part of the family. And this is your calling. I've mentioned it's been a few years, so I'll mention it again. This poem by this woman, I don't remember exactly how it went, but something to the effect of one day, one unsuspecting day, when I'm changing a diaper, preparing a meal, or washing a dish, my Lord will return. How I wish he would find me sharing his word. God have mercy on me. And it makes me want to pull my hair out. Because I want to say, wait a minute. It is just as spiritual to change a diaper. It is just as spiritual and, and, and right before and holy before God to cook a meal or to clean a dish as it is to share the word. Everything in its season and everything in its time and place. But God recognizes those seasons and he's put us here to do everything, everything Unto him. Okay. I'm going to change my passage though. Now we're going to preach from Philippians 1.27. So Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look at this. This is exactly what I'm saying. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Where's the word? Mind. With one spirit. With one soul. The same soul. The same effort. All of you given everything that you've got to the Lord. He doesn't call you simply for your thoughts. He doesn't call you simply for your heart. He doesn't call you for your emotions. He wants you. He wants me. 
the whole package. He made us a whole package. And he wants the only thing you really have is you. Oh, I've got a car. Oh, give me a break. I have a house. Well, the bank does, maybe. I have an apartment. No, the only thing you really have is you. And that's the only thing God really wants you to give him. And the other stuff's already his. You may not realize it. You may be acting like it's yours. But he already owns all of that. He says, I got all of the cattle on the, side, on the hillside. He's already got the rest. The only thing you really have is you. But that's what God wants. And that's what needs to be in his hands. The last one. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. And with this, we will have looked at all of Paul's passages. Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Where is it? Selves. Paul says, you know, he was sharing his body. He was sharing his time. He was sharing his, his efforts. He was sharing his mind. He was sharing his heart. He was sharing all that he was for them. Because he practiced as he preached. And that was his calling before God. So it takes me to this question. Why Paul using the word soul so rarely? Do you know what Paul uses instead? Paul uses the word spirit. And here I believe is why. We have our human life from Adam. God made Adam and he became a soul. As Paul says, a life-giving soul, living creature. Quoting Genesis 2-7, right? We looked at that passage. That same passage, Paul says, but now the second Adam from Christ, we have it from a life-giving spirit. When we're born into Adam, yes, we're souls. And the Old Testament talks about it. And that's really all that we are in a lot of sense. But now for Paul, the big thing is, all that you are as a child of Adam, it pales in comparison to his desire to talk to you about who you are as a born-again child of God. With God's Holy Spirit inside you. And so Paul talks about that because for Paul, the emphasis is no longer just life apart from God. Now there's a whole new aspect of life in the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God within your life. So with that, I leave you for the coming attractions next week. God willing, we'll look at man as one part, two parts, three parts more. But for now... We have to go to point three, so what? Points for home. The first man, Adam, became a, a, a living being. He became a soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There is something different about us than there is about every other soul. Did you hear about the shoe factory that burned down? 10,000 heels were lost, but all the souls were saved. Um, there's... Just... 
eked out. It's not even in the written lesson. I have no control. I'm also, I mean, you, I'm out of time. Give me two minutes to run over, please. I, I try hard not to, but if I could have two minutes of your time. Paul's making a point here that there is a difference between the Christian and every other soul, every other human. And my question to you is, do you see it? And do you think others see it? Do you think others see that we behave differently at work, that we behave differently at home, that we behave differently in, at the grocery store? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Everything you do is spiritual. If it's done for the Lord. God knows it. We need to know it. And we need to live it. And finally, some homework. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole soul, spirit, and soul, psuche, soul, and body be kept blameless. If you care to do homework this week, I would challenge you with this question. Why on earth am I going to use Deuteronomy 6.5 to help us understand that passage? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for uh, this morning. And thank you for the joy of being your servant. And thank you for the calling you've put in every one of us. And I pray that no one will walk out of here feeling unimportant. No one will walk out of here feeling ill-prepared. No one will walk out of here frightful of tomorrow or frightful of today. No one will feel like they stand alone in their family. They stand alone in their work. No one will be frightened by the pressures of this world. But rather, Lord, I pray that your spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will transform all of our souls into humble servants seeking your will and nothing more but also nothing less. And in that, Lord, we rest winds blow as they may. Through Jesus Christ, amen.